introduce yourself. Uh, Christian Warwick. And uh, Christian, why do you want to get baptized tonight? There's a few things. Um, one, just, you know, showing that I'm following Christ. And then two, um, to share my message. Uh, I was I was alone, you know, a majority of my life, you know. I actually ended up getting adopted when I was 16 years old. And during that whole entire time, I was I remember I was four um, and seeing my mom deal with the uh, mental, mental illnesses. For 16 years, I, I just felt so alone. And, and I just didn't understand why, why was things so hard for me. Um, and so then on Christmas day of many years ago, um, a good friend of mine was like, you know, Christian, what are you doing today? I was like, I was just like at home. I was like, you wanna play the game? And he's like, come over, you can have it. So um, I came over, I drove over there. It was this short five foot, short five foot woman. And she looked at me and she was just like, boy, it's Christmas day, why are you not with your family? And I was just like, I don't know. And she knew at that moment, you know, she had to help me. I got into health and fitness and then I got into real estate and I thought these things would truly, truly bring me happiness. You know, I had all the one be like, hey man, you're doing this. And hey man, I would get all these things, but I felt so alone. Um, so then I talked to my you know, real close friend Ryan in the back and I was just like, hey man, every Sunday I see you go to church. I was like, can I join you? You know, and I started coming to Colonial Woods and I started coming to Colonial Woods and I started praying and I started following, you know, TD Jakes. I started following Miles Monroe. I started following all these these leaders and I was still was so unhappy. I still remember it was like three, four months ago. I called my mom, I closed on a real estate transaction. I was like, mom, I got this money. I was just like, I, I find, you know, I find I can make you happy. I did this was my first transaction. And she was like, boy, you still don't get it. She was just like, boy, you you just don't get it. And she said, for the last 12 years, you've been trying to oppress me. You've been trying to make me happy. And the one thing that I asked you to do is make yourself happy and follow Christ. That's the only thing I've ever asked from you. And it, it just hit me instantly, you know, and it hit me. And I finally said, hey, God, can you be my friend? You know, and like, and like it, it, and it, it, it was just that, it was just that easy. And I was like, God, can you be my friend? And then that day, I mean, like instantly, my whole entire life just changed. I totaled five cars with my mom, okay? <laughs> One being a 2016 Cadillac. I did a lot of things. I've cost maybe that woman $100,000 worth of damage and stuff. No lie, like, she shows me receipts, she's a mom. And, and I, I didn't understand any of that until she was just like, Christian, that day I saw you on Christmas, God called me that night and he said to me in a dream, do not give up on this boy. And she stayed strong with me for 12 years. And it was, it's probably one of the best things that I've ever had in my whole entire life. You know, my mission now in life is to help kids from 11 to 16, 17, and even young adults, because I know what it felt like to be alone. And, and to, to change somebody else's life, and to give out, you know, show somebody else God is, is, is why I'm here. And that's why I serve every day. Christian's story and testimony. I had a chance to see him this morning real quick. And uh, my only problem is, is uh, he said he listened to TJ, was it TJ Jakes or whatever? And he didn't say anything about P.P. Whetstone. So I was, a little, I was a little disappointed. But anyway, no, you know, what was interesting, I remember that night. In fact, I remember that testimony. There were, we've shared a number of testimonies, but I remember this one specifically because it took me off guard. In fact, during the time, there he is, Christian. During the time, I remember looking at him and said, man, I didn't know. 
I didn't know you were coming in the doors of the church and felt alone. I didn't know the story. Um, I didn't know that even though you'd been coming, he always had a smile on his face, but I had no idea that he had yet to find Christ, but that he, that he felt so alone. And it really struck me. In fact, as soon as I heard that, I said, Jason, let's put this thing away. During Christmas time, I want to bring this testimony because there are so many that when we come into the Christmas season, we started with the silence, right? And when God feels silent, last week we talked about awkwardness, awkward family Christmas. We talked about everything you're not supposed to talk about, right, in, in church or anywhere else when you're together as a family. But but the fact is, is that for so many, when you come to Christmas, there's these expectations. And the expectation is that, man, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, this is gonna be great, the family's gonna be there, relationships are gonna be there. And, and when you look at it, the disillusionment and disappointment that everything is so upside down, it just feels like it's an upside down Christmas. If you happen to be following the Advent um, devotionals we've been doing, the first day I quoted uh, a song by Coldplay that uh, several years ago I came into contact with, and it just says, Christmas night, another fight, the tears we f cried a flood, got all kinds of poison, of poison in my blood, and I took a, my feet to Oxford Street trying to right a wrong, just walk away, those windows say, but I can't believe she's gone. And there's this little phrase, when you're still waiting for the snow to fall, doesn't really feel like Christmas at all. And for so many, Christmas, Christmas feels upside down. It, it feels, maybe there's an empty chair at your house for the first time, empty because somebody passed away or maybe because somebody left or because there's a brokenness in relationship or you thought the kids were coming home and the kids aren't home or whatever reason, it just feels upside down and if you feel like Christmas was kind of upside down boy you can identify certainly Jesus can identify with you because the first Christmas was so so upside down in the Old Testament in Isaiah it says for unto us a child is born unto us uh, a son is given and the government will be upon his shoulders and his name will be called wonderful counselor mighty God everlasting father prince of peace but that that was the, that's the Christ who is yet to come. We didn't see that in his first coming. He was not what people expected. If you have your Bibles, turn to Luke chapter 2. Luke chapter 2, very familiar for many individuals. And, and Christmas time, we tend to read through the story. But just looking through Luke and his telling of the Christmas story, if we jump into it kind of midway in verse 6, he says this. While they were there... The time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son, and she wrapped him in cloths, placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people, because today in the town of David a Savior has been born to you, he is Christ the Lord, and this will be a sign to you. You'll find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with an angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. And when the angels had left them and gone into, he uh, in, uh, into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and they found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in a manger. 
And when they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told to them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondered them in her heart. And the shepherds returned glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as had been told. Now on the eighth day, when it was time to circumcise him, he was given the name Jesus, the name the angel had given him before he had been conceived. And when the time of their purification, according to the law of Moses, had been completed, which is 40 days for a boy, Joseph and Mary took him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every firstborn male is to be consecrated to the Lord and to offer a sacrifice in keeping with what was said in the law of the Lord, a pair of doves or two pigeons. And if you think about what was expected and what happened, it's really upside down. I put them on your notes real quick, five of them. Just You have a fragile infant instead of a, a powerful king. Everybody was expecting, in fact, I, I was reading one devotional not long ago, and they said presumably God can do whatever God wants to do, and if God can do whatever God wants to do, God could have just as easily sent Jesus as a, as a glorious, full-grown king. He could, have, he could have come in all of his majesty and power. In fact, we know that when he comes again, he's coming as a glorious king, majesty and power. And so, so God could have certainly done that in the first case, but he came so unexpectedly as this, this fragile little child and he had a lowly manger in fact I put down in my notes he had a borrowed lowly manger (laughs) that seems appropriate instead of a glorious mansion you would think that if he's king of kings and lord of lords he's going to be a king living in a mansion and yet when Jesus comes he's in a a borrowed lonely manger and I say that because well he he didn't have anything at the end of his life he was put in a borrowed tomb so I guess it makes sense he'd be in a borrowed manger to begin his life And he's almost uh, the opposite of Moses. I was thinking about this. Moses, Moses uh, was born as kind of a peasant, and he was brought into a glorious, he was rescued, and he was brought into the Pharaoh's uh, uh, family, and so he was raised as a king. Now you've got Jesus who is king, and he gives up the throne of heaven, and he now comes in as kind of a, a peasant child. Very opposite, and yet we know that in the Old Testament, Moses is kind of a a symbol of the future coming. He's a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ. He's a fragile child. It's a borrowed manger. Shepherds were the ones that bore witness to him instead of a, a stadium of dignitaries. Shepherds aren't exactly the ones that are thought of the most in their society. It's it's kind of upside down. And coming back to that idea of his wealth, he had peasant parents instead of a royal household. Now think about this. Even though they were from a royal line, the line of David, they were peasants. And we know this because if you look down in verse 24, I I read long enough for you to see what they brought as a sacrifice. Did you happen to notice what they brought? They brought in keeping with the law after the time of purification was over. He had already been um, circumcised. They bring him back to the temple they bring a pair of doves or pigeons in accordance with the law. Well, if you go back and read that in accordance with the law in Leviticus, actually what they were supposed to bring was a lamb to sacrifice. But the caveat is, if you're too poor to afford a lamb, you can bring two doves 
or two pigeons. Think about that. Jesus' family was a family tree of royalty, and yet the reality of his parents was they were so poor, they couldn't even afford the lamb for the sacrifice. Kind of upside down, isn't it? Not what you would think of a glorious king. And then the last one that I notice is that simply this, it's that he came as a savior who would serve and die instead of a ruler who would rescue and lead. Now we know he's a ruler who's going to come and rescue and lead, but Jesus said himself, he says, I want you to understand, I, I didn't come to be served, but I came to serve and to die as a ransom for many. And it's interesting because in the book of Philippians, this is how Paul describes it. He says, um, your attitude should be the same as that of Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he made himself nothing, taken on the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself and he became obedient to death, even death on the cross. Why? Well, as I was thinking about this this week, and it's probably not the mainstay of the message, the upside-down first Christmas kind of gives us some promises. And the first one is just simply this. Jesus looks at you today, no matter where you're at, no matter how dim the lights are in your life, if it's good, if it's bad. We said last week, right, that if you've got an elephant in the room at Christmas time, it's 10 times bigger. Well, the fact is, wherever you're at in life, when you're at Christmas time, it is accelerated and magnified. And if you're in a good place in life, it's great. And if you're not in a good place in life, Christmas just magnifies it, amplifies it. And so if the chair is empty before Christmas, it just looks like a bigger empty chair at Christmas. And the first promise that Christ makes by virtue of his humble beginning was, I understand. I get it. Whatever you're going through today, I get it. Hebrews chapter 2 says that he was tempted in every way like us, and because he suffered, because he went through this, because he went through life, because he went through, he went through illness, he went through all of this stuff, because he himself was tempted in every way such as we are. He is the perfect one to be your intercessor because he identifies with you. And the second promise to me is really powerful because he promises um, <laughs> he's not scared. He's not scared of life. In fact, I, I love what this one devotional author, uh, Ryan Walk, uh, Waller, wrote. He said, he says, I don't know about you, but it helps me tremendously to know that Jesus will not only come to have the world rest upon his shoulders, but that he is brave enough to allow the world to bear down on him. Put another way, the world can be terrifying, but the good news is God is not afraid. Christ is the, is the epitome of being willing to step into whatever we have to walk through and carry that same challenge. He's not playing by a different set of rules, so to speak. He understands, he gets us, and the world does not terrify him, which, which leads me to the last one is the promise is very simple. I'll meet you wherever you're at. 
One of the things that strikes me about Christian's testimony, but that would be the testimony that I've noticed over the years, is that Christ will always meet you where you're at. Wherever your biggest need is, that's where Christ will meet you. But he will always bring you to where he wants you to be. If you've gone through loss, he'll meet you in your grieving. But the biggest issue in a person's life is not loss. It's our need of Christ, and he'll always bring you to where he wants you to be. And frankly, loneliness is huge, but it's not the biggest need in our life. It may be the biggest need you're feeling today. He'll always meet you there, but he'll always bring you to where he wants you to be. Maybe the biggest need in your life today is you have an addiction in your life. Maybe it's an addiction like you think of typically. Drugs and alcohol, maybe it's a different kind of addiction. Christ will always meet you where your biggest need is. But then he will always bring you to where he wants you to be. That's the way Christ works. And so I began to look through the Gospels. And I, I don't know, maybe, do you know, I, there was a time as a pastor, I didn't, now don't, don't take me wrong. But I didn't really, I liked, I liked the Gospels. We need the Gospel. I didn't like preaching in the Gospels. Because they don't break up into nice little patterns the way I like it. I'm, if you haven't noticed this, I always got five ways of doing this, six ways of doing this, ten ways of doing this. Or as my staff likes to say, you give us three points with a hundred subpoints. It's just the way my brain thinks. And so I'll be honest with you, I like preaching Paul's stuff because Paul thinks far more analytically. I, I like the way Paul breaks down. And so for the longest time, I, it was just, I preached the Gospels, I just didn't enjoy the Gospels. But can I tell you, in the last number of years, I have just loved the Gospels. Whether it's Matthew or Mark or Luke coming from a more Gentile viewpoint and trying to help individuals who are Gentiles or John as he's celebrating the deity of Christ, I love the Gospels. And when Jesus looks at us and says, uh, the thief comes to kill, steal, and destroy, but I am come that you might have life and have it abundantly, what he's promising is, is whatever your life is today, I will meet you where you're at and I am able to bring you to where I want you to be. And you can probably find 20 or 30 of them in the Gospels. I'm going to give you five real quick, real quick. Number one, if you're the individual who's lost everything, Jesus says you can come to me. In John chapter 11, Mary and Martha have lost their brother. This is more than simply someone who lost a brother, but them being unmarried. Their brother was also their provider. They, they lost their means of income. They, they lost everything. They'd lost their position in the community by virtue of the male and the family no longer being there. But it's interesting, Martha looks at Jesus and she says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know he's going to rise again in the resurrection on the last day. In other words, I know there's hope someday, but what about today? And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Do you believe this? And I, I, I got to tell you, I love this passage because for the person who has gone through loss and for some of my dear friends, friends this is the first Christmas season they they're they're experiencing loss 
I have dear friends who've passed away in this last year, and this is the first year of the empty chair. Whether it be a parent or a spouse or a child, this is the first year. Or they've gone through the devastation of divorce, and this is the first year. This is the first year of that sense of emptiness. And it's interesting, Jesus looks at her and he says, I want you to know your brother's going to live again. And she said, yeah, I know someday there's hope. I know someday in that last day there's going to be hope. And let me just clarify this. What if Jesus had never raised Lazarus from the dead? What he's about to say is still true. He looks at her and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, he raises Lazarus from the dead, I believe, to prove his point. But even if he hadn't raised Lazarus from the dead, Jesus was looking at her and saying, no, 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 you're looking at someday I'm offering you today. See, what you're looking for is life. What you're looking for is hope. What you're looking for, you're thinking, can only come someday, but I am promising you it can come today. And there are some that are even here that are saying, yep, someday there's hope, someday in heaven. And by the way, that is the greatest hope. I love that hope. But Jesus didn't simply come and offer hope that someday you can die and go to heaven. Jesus came and offered hope so that today you can have life and have it abundantly. And he looks and he says, even if you've lost everything, I will meet you where you're at and I will bring you to where I want you to be, but I will meet that deep sense of need in your life because I am the resurrection and the life for the one who's lost everything. Number two, for the one who is empty. Jesus says these words in John chapter six. He says, I tell you the truth, whoever believes in me will have everlasting life. Verse 48, because I am the bread of heaven and your forefathers ate the manna in the desert, yet they died. But there is a bread that comes down from heaven which man may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. This is bread is my flesh and I will give my life for the whole world. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And if you feel empty, inside I can fill that emptiness I don't know about you but I like bread any of you like bread very few of you like bread <laughs> is everybody else on the keto diet is that what it is I'm on that we're well, I'm not on it I fondly remember I was on the keto diet and and uh, I gotta tell you They've got this keto bread, and we try to eat everything with keto bread, and now it's just, just whatever. I mean, as I'm just kind of, in fact, the other day, if they made keto donuts, I'm there. I'd be there. <laughs> in fact, one of my most exciting things, Pastor Brian, we're going to Israel. I'm, you know what I'm excited? Yeah, I suppose it's neat to walk where Jesus walked, but they got bread. They got really good bread. <laughs> in fact, I'm planning the whole trip around the buffets. I don't know if you know that or not, but... In most of the world, it's bread. Why? Because bread sustains. Bread is, is, bread is kind, of the, it's kind of the essence. It's the foundation of a diet for many. When I was in Africa, they had this plant called the cassava plant. I don't know if you've ever been to Africa. If you ever had, it, it's all over Africa. And the first time I went there, it is, uh, it, it, well, a guy's name was Joseph. I was in Uganda. 
And every time you would go to anywhere, restaurant, I mean, unless you went, I mean, there was no chain restaurants we went to, but if you went somewhere, there was always cassava. And it looks like mashed potatoes. I will just warn you, it does not taste like mashed potatoes. I mean, if you put enough butter, gravy, and salt on it, it might be, but it's, it's, um, it's oftentimes fixed. It's a root plant. They smash it up. They cook it. It's all over the place. It's a mainstay of almost every household. It's very thick, very pasty. Um, people, a lot of times, they just eat it with their fingers. That's every, I mean, everywhere you go. Nigeria was that way. You're going to Southern Africa. Not as much there, but you see it there too. And what's interesting about cassava, I was talking to Joseph, and it's everywhere, and he said, oh, cassava, he said, uh, cassava, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't have much nutrition. He said, honestly, it's what we give the hungry babies at night so they won't cry. And I was heartbroken to hear that. And he said, but if that's all they eat, they'll starve. Because there's not enough nutrition in it to sustain life. And that's always struck with me. The stuff that we eat to satisfy, but that it, it won't sustain. There's so many things we fill our hunger with. Relationships and you know what I mean. And work. It can be drugs, alcohol. It can be anything. It can be any kind of an addictive type thing. Even religion in and of itself. I mean, you're saying, well, how can you? How, what do you mean religion won't satisfy? Well, Jesus said that to the Pharisees. He says, you study the Scriptures because you think that by studying them, you have the keys to eternal life. But those very Scriptures point to me, and I'm right here, and yet you won't receive me. I mean, you can study stuff and still not know Christ. And Man, what's that old hymn of faith? Hallelujah, I have found him whom my soul so long has craved. Jesus satisfies my hunger through his blood. I now am saved. Christ says, I'm the one that fills your hunger, the empty place, but it sustains you. It gives you life. I promise. The third one I, I, I noticed and is that simply for the one who's looking for meaning and significance. I, I love this passage. You know it. You've probably heard it a hundred times where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. But look at it. Look what he says. He says, remain in me and I will remain in you, John 15. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Earlier, Jesus said, I am the vine. You are the branches. He says, if a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Verse 7 says this. If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given to you. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. Hey, let's read that. Let's read that together. Ready? You see it there? This is to my Father. Let's say it together. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. Say that again. This is to my Father's glory that you bear much fruit. We could do an entire message on what fruit is. 
multiplying our lives into the lives of others, sharing Christ into the lives of others. But here's what I notice. Jesus says that it's not just about life. Remain in me. I am the vine. He says it's not just about life. It's what comes from that life. Fruit. Do you notice that? You can live and have no fruit. But he says the byproduct of what comes from your relationship with me is what brings meaning and significance. Fruit. Over the last several weeks, and it's just the last several weeks I've been thinking about this, although uh, this has been a reality for years, there is a trend. By the way, this is not an accusation. Observation. There's a trend within, I'll call it this, although I struggle with it, but within Christendom, okay? Within Christendom, there is a trend over the last 10 to 15, 20 years to explain away the, exclu the, 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 uh, the exclusiveness of who Christ says He is. Jesus says in John chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus said that. I didn't say it, but people don't like it. And so we've been explaining away a lot of stuff. And so one of the things you've heard a lot about, in fact, some of you right now might be doing it, is the whole deconstructing faith. Andrew, your generation especially, they're going through this whole thing where they're deconstructing their faith. And there's a lot of things. They, they see their parents and they don't there's a couple things about it, but some of the things they see, they're trying to go back and ask themselves, is this really true? And what's happening is within college campuses and effectively all around the world, we're explaining away and deconstructing foundational things in the faith. And did God really create the world? Is the Old Testament really true? Did God really, I mean, is Bible really scripture? Is it really God's word? And and so what happens is if you start taking away foundational stuff, it has an impact, right? You take the building blocks away, it impacts the entire faith. And so because of it, we feel freedom because we've, we've left our parents' faith behind, but what it's left is a sense of deep discouragement, hopelessness, and dread. Jesus is not the only way. He can't be. Because a loving God has to have a lot of ways to heaven. And so when Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, well, he probably thought that and meant that, but that's not really true. Because as long as you're sincere, there's lots of different ways to heaven as long as you're sincere about it. And, and so Jesus is no longer exclusive. This whole thing of heaven and eternity, eh, we don't really know if there is a heaven. We don't even know if there is an eternity. And there's certainly not a hell. And there's, you now, by the way, these are, I'm not sharing truths. I'm sharing the arguments that are there. And what is interesting, and it just hit me, in the last several weeks. The byproduct of every single one of these thought patterns is I don't really know what I believe. I don't really have any hope. 
And the fruit is discouragement and hopelessness. Every single one of them. Forty years ago, it was, the, it was the strong push of science and atheism in the last 40 to 50 years. There is no God. There is no God. There is no God. There is no God. We can explain all of this. And that's, that's fine. You can believe that. But you know what the fruit of that is? A sense of hopelessness and despair. And here's what Jesus said. Jesus said that in those days, there are going to be those that are false prophets. And then he said this. By their fruit, you will know them. In fact, I would dare say quite a few of you here this morning. What I just described, you're in that same thought pattern. And if you forgive me, I'm not trying to be frivolous. How's it working for you? How's it working? Jesus said, um, come to me. I'm the bread of life. I'll fill you and give you life. Come to me if you're empty and hopeless. I am the resurrection and the life. You'll have hope and a future. Come to me. Remain in me. I'm the vine. You remain in me and I remain in you. You'll not only have life, but you'll have meaning of life. In case you're filling in blanks, the next one is if you're looking for security, Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. And if you're looking for real life, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. For those that are here this morning, and for whatever reason, your Christmas is upside down. Jesus says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I am come that you might have life and have it to the full. I take everything that's upside down. I will right-side it, and I will give you a sense of meaning, worth, value. Christian, you and I, I'm looking right at you, buddy. You could have all kinds of things, but boy, what I want for you is to have Jesus. I want for you to have life. And he makes all the difference in the world. Lord, you are so gracious and so kind. And I find that you did not come into the world to condemn the world. That's what it says in John 3, 17 and 18. It says you didn't come to condemn the world, but that the world through you might be saved. You are not making an accusation. You are not pronouncing condemnation. We're already there. You are offering life. Whoever believes in me, even if someday you do pass away, you're not really dead because you have life in me. That whosoever believes in me will not perish, but have eternal life. The Gospels are full of life. Jesus, you've said, come to me, you who are weary, heavy burdened, weighed down by life and I will give you rest. Maybe this day, 2022, 14 days before Christmas Day, 
is the day that you would say, Lord, I want you. I need you. And I know people have whispered everything into my ear, but I don't care. I believe in you. I believe you pursued me. I believe you gave up heaven. I believe you lived a sinless life. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you raised to life. And I believe you're coming again. And I want to spend eternity with you. I want hope today. Would you forgive me? Come into my life and give me life. Meet me in my deepest need, but I give you permission. Just bring me to wherever you want me to be. I am yours. I am yours. If you're here today, it's that simple prayer. In fact, you know what? Can we just all say it together? I am yours. Say it. Let's say it. I am yours. Make me your child. Bring me to where you want me to be. I'm asking that today. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.